we're going to be talking this morning about what, what happens when life is not fair, when it's not right. And let me tell you something that's not fair. I'll just tell you. It, for some of you, it's football season. For me, it's still baseball season because my team is still in it. Now, I'm a Reds fan, and for that, I get, uh, I get put into the very small minority around here, and I get that. I understand that. I know some of you are tolerating me, you know, and, and that's fine as a Reds. So I get that. That's okay. And uh, we'll smile back and forth and agree to disagree, and that, that's fine. But the Reds are up about eight games or so on the Cardinals right now. I don't know if you've, if you've seen that or not, but just wanted to let you know. You know, I've been praying for years uh, that once in my adult lifetime, I'd have something to cheer for in September with the Reds. And, and so here it is. And so anyway, but I'll tell you what's not fair. And, and you, you Cardinal fans, you can relate to this, all right? You, you can relate to it. What's not fair is the structure that baseball has set itself up in salaries and so on. Now, now we, we can argue and complain all day long about a guy who plays third base for the Yankees making $25 million a year. And here we all are, you know, we, you know, I mean, we work harder than he does, don't we? Absolutely. And so, uh, anyway, but he gets paid 20, there's something not fair about that. You know, he just, you know, he's just playing a game for 25 million. What's, what's, what's more unfair is the fact that the Yankees themselves, now I'm going to, I'm going to pin myself against a, a few of you here, but, but the Yankees, sorry, Drew, but, uh, love you anyway, but, but the Yankees, the Yankees operate on a different scale than most every other team. They have a $200 million payroll. And, and, and go out and get whatever player they want. And if they make a mistake, you know what they do the next year? Just go get another guy. They'll fill that guy's spot, and they'll eat that salary, no problem. Whereas, whereas the Reds and the Cardinals and other teams like that that don't have those opportunities, they have to struggle and scrape, you know, and, and for every dollar that they get. It's, it's miserable, you know, and, and it's not fair because the Yankees every year have a chance to win it, every single year. Drew, you're a Yankees fan. Every year is spring training. You're not just hoping the Yankees have a chance. You know they got, a, they got a shot. They're the favorite every single year. And here I am, a Reds fan. And it's been since 1990. You realize I was in the eighth grade the last time I had this kind of hope. I just, I, I'm, I'm excited. It's been 20 years. And, and, but some things are just not fair. I, that happens to be one of them. And then there are some things in life that just aren't right. And there is something this morning that is just off in the universe. And, and I don't question God's sovereignty in any way, but when Kentucky beats Louisville, there's something that, you know, I know God watches, you know, his eyes on the sparrow, and, he, and I get that. Something's just wrong with that, I, you know, and and so for the rest of you, you just, yeah, you're waiting. There's nothing on the pulpit this morning. You're just waiting. I, you know, I know Louisville's not any good, but, but you know, we can look at things like that, and we can joke, and we can smile, because there are things in sports, you know, that maybe some of you like. You just say, ah, it's not fair. I can't, you know, I or that's just not right. That shouldn't happen. But the real truth of the matter is there are things in your life right now that just flat aren't fair. They're just not. And, and I, you know, I, I have three young children, and that's one of the big things in our home. Well, that's not fair. We went on this trip to Louisville a couple of days ago, and, and my daughter, Lucy, is an organizer and a packer, and she likes to take all kinds of things, and, and she's got a spot for everything. Well, the other two... Uh, believe that they should get to take as much stuff as Lucy does. Well, what we've learned is that there are certain things that will alleviate potential problems down the road, and literally down the road, like on the WK Parkway heading to Louisville. So if we just let Lucy take a few extra things, you know, the world is, is okay. But then Hank and Nora believe they ought to be able to do the same thing. Well, I had a conversation with Hank. And he said, well, Lucy's got, you know, this many stuffed animals. I ought to be able to take. I said, no. Said, no, 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 no. We're not doing that. And, and I understand the big picture. You know what I'm saying? I mean, I get it that Lucy's going to, you know, she's, 
she's going to struggle if she doesn't get all that stuff. And, and I'm not trying to pacify her at the expense of another kid, but I just know what works for each kid. I mean, you know, as you've got children. So Hank wanted to take, I think Lucy had five stuffed animals to go, and then Hank wanted to take five, and I said, no, you got two. He said, well, that's not fair. And you know my response to him? I mean, we've all done it. I said, well, life's not fair. I love that. I mean, it's, you know, it's, you get very few opportunities to do that kind of thing. I mean, I just, it was perfect. I, you know, I, well, I set him up to it. And, and um, the kid's going to, he's going to be warped. But uh, he still, you know, he still runs down right now and, and, and thinks I'm all right. But, but, you know, the truth is that there are things you have in your life that aren't as trivial as that. It's not a, 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 a payroll structure in baseball. It's not a stuffed animal issue for you. It's a big deal. You've got things right now that if I were to ask for a show of hands and for everybody to go around, and we just pass the microphone around and tell our stories, we would be shocked. Abs- I mean, I'm serious. Absolutely shocked at the unfair situations that many folks in here, if not everybody in here, could attest to. Things that you say, you know what, that's just, that's just not fair. Why? Why me and not them? Or why them and not me? Or why this? We all have those things. And I think it's perfectly human to, to say those things. And we have things in our lives that just aren't right. It, it maybe is not unfair, but you say, it's just, there's just something wrong in that. Maybe for some of you, that unfair or that wrong situation has recently been the death of a loved one, someone that you were very, very close to. And maybe it was expected, maybe it wasn't, but it was somebody that is now gone. You've experienced that. Maybe it's been the loss of a job. In our recent economic times, obviously, that's affected a lot of people. And maybe you're somebody here who's been that, and you just say, it's just not fair, it's not right. Why, why should I lose my job. Why should this happen to me? Or maybe you were passed over for a promotion that you really deserved. You were the best person for that job, and somebody else who doesn't work as hard as you, hasn't been there as long as you, doesn't get it like you get it, got the job instead of you. And you say, well, that's just not, that's not fair. That, that, something's not right when those kinds of things happen. Maybe something you did was given credit for to someone else. Boy, I'll tell you, it works sometimes. That's the hardest thing, isn't it? You do something, and you're doing a really good job, and someone else sort of gets credit for it. Maybe it's your boss that gets credit for all the things you do, and you know you're just propping them up. Because if you stop doing your job, they're not doing their job, and they fall flat on their face. They get the credit for what you do. Something unfair about that. Maybe you've been struggling financially, and you look around in the world, and you say, you know what? I've been trying to do money God's way. I've been, I've been trying to operate as morally and ethically as possible with my money, and I'm living check to check, and I know that person. I know what they do with their taxes. I know how they operate with their money. I know what they do, and how on earth are they blessed financially, and I'm not? Well, that's real stuff. Because the truth is, life isn't fair. And I don't have to tell you that because you know and you've told that to people and your kids and so on just like I have. The truth is there are things in this world that aren't right. And I'm not here to sugarcoat it this morning and tell you, well, it, it's it really, it, it's okay. It's not okay. There are things that are unfair. There are things that are not right. And we then are faced to deal with those things. There are evil and arrogant people in this world who get things that we don't get and we try to live the right way. What's fair? What's right about that? And yet here we are. 
The list goes on and on with those things. You could probably write several things down right now that you say, that's unfair, that's not right. And yet here we are, we have to deal with them. There are so many of those things we'll never be able to change. And you've probably realized that. In fact, there's probably a situation in your life for the last 20, 25 years that's led us to have seen that much time in your adult life that you say, you know what, I've been dealing with that for a long time. And you've, you've finally come to grips with the fact, I can't change it. There's nothing I can do to make that right or to make that more fair. So what then do you do in the midst of that? you got your Bible handy, turn with me to James chapter 5. James is over toward the end of the New Testament. If you get to Revelation, turn to the left, just a couple of books, and you'll see a small five-chapter letter called James. James is a guy who was the half-brother of Jesus, and he is a leader in the church in Jerusalem during the time around the first century, right after Jesus has gone back into heaven. And he's writing a letter to people who have been scattered throughout the region because they are Christians. They face some difficult times because of their faith in Jesus. And so he's writing to them to make sure that they know that their faith is real. Uh, You can imagine during that time that they had a lot of folks who got caught up in the rush, so to speak, that Jesus brought. And as a result, they struggled then later on when some testing came, and James is helping them understand, here's how you can know in the midst of all that junk of life if your faith is real or if it's not. And so he's sort of been giving some tests of, of authentic Christianity. That's been the title of our series. And as you can tell on the screen, we're on number 18. We have, we have been in James for a while. Some of you are saying, will it ever end? Yes, it will. Yes, it will. There's light at the end of the tunnel. At the end of September, we'll be done with James. And somebody said, Amen. We'll move on after that. And, and, but we, we've, we've not wanted to rush through this. There is a, a ton of incredible truth found in this short little letter. And uh, this morning I want to recap very briefly because it, it's a, a connecting point for us. What we looked at last week. Look with me in, in verses 1 through 6 of James chapter 5. Here's what we looked at last week. Come now, you rich people, weep and wail over the miseries that are coming on you. Your wealth is ruined. Your clothes are moth-eaten. Your silver and your gold are corroded. And their corrosion will be a witness against you and and will eat your flesh like fire. You stored up treasure in the last days. Look, the pay that you withheld from the workers who reaped your field cries out. And the outcry of the harvesters has reached the ears of the Lord. You have lived luxuriously on the land and you have indulged yourselves. You have fattened your hearts for the day of slaughter. You have condemned, you have murdered the righteous man. He does not resist you. We get to this point, sort of a pause between verse 6 and verse 7, where there is a point of decision for the people affected by the folks described in verses 1 through 6. So here's what it is. We looked at last week, excuse me, the idea that these rich folks have done all of this, (coughs) excuse me, have done all this stuff that has increased what they have gotten at the expense of other people. You see, they have earned their wages by keeping them from other folks. They have abused people. They've taken advantage of laws and so on and so forth. And as a result, you have these folks that James is writing to that have been abused by these people, and it's not fair and it's not right. You kind of see the scenario that James is setting up. And so they have a point of decision right here. What will they do? How will they handle it? When life is not fair, when the, the folks who have abused them have, have done it in a way that, that is wrong and immoral, and the people that have been abused, that are, that are abused by the system, so to speak, have done nothing wrong. 
This is a scenario for them where life is unfair and life is not right. What will they do? Now, if you think about how we normally handle it, when something is not fair, what happens? We get angry. When I just get mad, I'll be honest with you. Uh, I, I just, I, I get really angry when something is not fair. Uh, it's easy to play the victim, isn't it? We've probably all done that. I'm sure you have. I have. I know I, I do that from time to time. We play the victim. Well, you know, this is just, it's, I need somebody to help me out. If only this and if only that. We play the victim. We, we seek revenge sometimes. We do. We're going we're gonna to take care of business, and, and I'm going to get it done, and I'm going to make sure that they, that they know how unfair this is. Sometimes we just get jealous. We, we're just jealous of other people. We want what they have. We want where they are, and, and we get jealous. Sometimes we throw a pity party. And I, I know maybe I'm the only one who does this, but we try to get as many people around us who will agree with us. And, oh, yeah, that's not fair. Oh, well, I tell you, that's not right. Well, you deserve that. I guarantee you got folks, if you have a job right now and, and you're that kind of, and you have coworkers, you probably got folks like that that throw those pity parties all the time. Or you know who they are, so when you need to throw your own party, you invite all those people. You know, I mean, that's, that's what we do. I get that. I understand. You know, and, and in my deal with the Reds and the, and the Yankees here, you know, I do this. I get mad because the Yankees got more than the Reds got. You know, I, I, I play the victim. Well, the Reds just don't have a chance. You know, just each, it's just every once in a while, every 20 years, you know, maybe. You know, and then, then I seek revenge because my son knows if you're a Yankee fan in our house, you have to sleep outside. That's the way that it is. And he, he knows uh, that's just part of the deal. And so far, he's not, you know, been forced to sleep outside. But if the day comes... One rule will be enforced. I get jealous. I really do. I, and I throw a pity party. I get all my Reds fans around me, and I, I know I'll call them up. We just, we just bash on the Yankees all day long, you know. But isn't that true in life? That's what we do. When, when life is not fair, those are the things we do. When life is not right, we also get angry. But we also get confused when something's not right in life. And it can lead us to a, a degree of discouragement that leads into depression. And many of us today are discouraged and depressed by the things that are unfair and not right in life. Those are our typical responses. That's our, our ingrained, basic human response, is to do those things. And these folks are faced with the same issue. And I'm thankful that James then gives them, and by implication, gives us the way, the proper way that we should handle Look with me in verse 7. Therefore, brothers, be patient until the Lord's coming. See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth and is patient with it. Until it receive, until with it, until it receives the early and late rains, you must also be patient. Strengthen your hearts, because the Lord's coming is near. Brothers, do not complain about one another, so that you not you will not be judged. Look, the judge stands at the door. Brothers, take the prophets who spoke in the Lord's name as an example of suffering and patience. See, we count as blessed those who have endured. You have heard of Job's endurance and have seen the outcome from the Lord. The Lord is very compassionate. And merciful. Point of decision after verse 6. How will they handle a situation that is unfair, that's not right? James then gives them instructions. Here's what you do. It is simple. It is extremely, extremely simple. But it's not easy. I'll tell you that up front. It is extremely simple. When you ask the question, what am I to do when life isn't fair or right? What am I to do? I want you in that box on your bulletin. If you follow along, you got one thing to write down today. And it's this, because I want you to get it. I want you to remember it. I don't want you to be thinking about anything else. It's this. Keep trusting Jesus. 
When life is not fair, when life is not right, you have a simple thing to repeat, a simple thing to do. Not easy, but simple. Keep trusting Jesus. James gives us the idea here that the Lord can be trusted. And we'll see how this unpacks here briefly in just a moment. But keep trusting Jesus. That is your way through the issue in your life that is unfair and is not right. Now, you've got extra space on your bulletin. I hope you take some notes. I hope you kind of point everything back to that particular concept because that's what James is building on here, and this is what we've got to get. Now, he shows us what this means, and let's look at it as we quickly walk through some of these verses here. In verses 7 and 8, he uses this word, therefore, and this is obviously a connecting word from verses 1 through 6. He basically is setting it up. If you're going to do all the things in verses 7 through 11, you've got to have some connection to verses 1 through 6. So we go back to the truths that we learned last week and the idea of this idea of wealth and so on that, that we looked at last week. First of all, wealth doesn't last. It does not last. He, he shows that in verses 1 through 6. We can accumulate all the stuff we want here on earth, but it does not last. We know that. We're not stupid. We get that. It does not last. You cannot take it with you. And so when he's talking about they, they've been abused by the system, they, they've had these rotten people who have taken advantage of them and so on, he reminds them, look, therefore, because wealth doesn't last, therefore you can abide by verses 7 through 11. We also saw last week that, that the wealth that these folks had, that they were so proud of and so counting on, that it was going to testify against them, that money talks, and it always reveals our heart, always. And so we looked at that last week, how, how that, that money will testify against those folks who have abused them. And then we saw... That, that it is true that that love for money had eroded the character of those people. That, they, that maybe they started off being these nice folks who the Lord had just blessed, but then they started withholding wages so they could have some more. Then they started abusing and, 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 and working the system to their advantage. It eroded their character. And then we also saw that wealth that's not used for God's glory is condemned by Him. And so James says, look, if all that stuff is true, then you can go and abide by verses 7 through 11. But you first got to buy into the fact that this life on earth is temporary, that it's not going to last, that all those pursuits of those people who have made life unfair and not right, all those things are not what God wants. And until we come to grips with that, we can't abide by verses 7 through 11. So he's given them a broad perspective on all the things of this world, that it's temporary, that it's not going to last, that, that God's not really for those things anyway. God is after your heart, and he wants you to be loyal to him. And if he blesses you in the process, then so be it. But He's, he's warning them, don't put your trust in those things because those things will not last. And he says, because of all that truth, therefore, be patient. And he uses that word, those words there, be patient. He actually mentions it about three times in this particular passage, these short few verses we're looking at this morning. And, and really what it, what it does, it has a basic meaning of, of having external and internal control in a difficult time. You ever known somebody like that? I mean, they go through a horrendous time in their lives. And yet, outwardly and seemingly inwardly, they have control. They have some level of peace that you're just amazed by. And, and it's not a fake deal. They're not just stuffing it. They're not just ignoring what's going on. They really have something that they're holding on to that is giving them peace in the midst of a storm that none of us could even imagine. Maybe you've been there. That's what he's talking about, this idea of be patient. Maintain control on the outside and on the inside, not faking it, but have some control over yourself in the midst of difficult circumstances. It's often said of God, in fact, is these words, patient, long-suffering. It's often said of God that, that He is long-suffering, that, that he, 
will allow us the opportunity to know him. That's why he doesn't, it's why he has not yet come back and judge all of our sin and judge the world. He is long suffering. He is giving people opportunity to come to know him. It's a word used for God. And so James says the same thing. Be long suffering. Be patient. And he gives an example here. And he uses this farmer as an example. And certainly around here in our area, this is a, a prominent example. We see this all over the place. How, how you plant and then you wait and then you harvest and, and, and then you wait some more. I mean, farming is a lot about waiting. I don't know much about farming, but I know that. It's a lot about waiting. It requires a lot of patience to be able to make that happen. So he uses this and he says here in verse 7, he says, See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth and is patient with it until it receives the early and late rains. That farmer must have a long-term approach to things. You know, a farmer that is up and down every single day is going to drive himself crazy. Because one day it's going to rain too much. The next day it's not going to rain at all. One week it's going to get, you know, too much sun. The next week it's not going to get enough. If a farmer cannot maintain some control, he's going to go out of his mind. So many farmers get that. Some of you say, I'm already out of my mind. Listen, it's driven me crazy. I, I'm with you. My, my wife I grew up on a farm, and, and I, you know, I understand it. I talk with my father-in-law, and boy, it's the same thing. But, but that's what he's talking about. How a farmer will, will see the long term and say, look, I don't need to get too up today. It's okay. I don't need to get too down today. In the long term, it tends to shake out. That's sort of the example that he's giving right there. And so he's saying that's the kind of patience that's needed. When it's tested, and sometimes the wait is long, that farmer, when the rain comes, when the rain doesn't, maintains his control. And that's what James is saying. And why does he do that? He says, the precious fruit of the earth. He's waiting on something that makes it worth the wait. Because the crop is going to grow. He's going to get the harvest, and that's what he's waiting on. And James then says in verse 8, you also. He says, just like that farmer is patient, just like that guy waits for the rain and waits for the crops to grow, you also be patient. Follow the farmer's example. Be a long-term thinker. And so when life is not fair, when life is not right, Take the example of the farmer and look from a broader perspective and say, hold on just a second. I'm not going to get caught up and overwhelmed by these emotions. I'll experience them, I'll walk through them, but I'm not going to get caught up in them because I see from the long term. And that's what James is saying. That's how we are to be patient. And he says in verse 8, strengthen your hearts. He says, first, be patient. Take a long-term approach. And in the process, strengthen your hearts. The truth is today, some of us are holding on by a thread. And I, and, and I don't say that lightly. Some of us have been in situations that are so unfair, so not right, and life has beaten you up so much, you are this close to giving up, turning your back on God, and saying, you can have it. And I get that. And I understand that feeling. And James says in response to those who are that far close to the edge and others who are saying, this is just not right, this stinks. He says, strengthen your hearts. When he used the word heart there, the Bible over and over, it rarely refers to the physical heart. It's really, uh, it's, a, it's an analogy for your inner person. It's your emotions, your intellect, your, your mind, your thoughts. It's your will and your decisions. It's your spiritual life. He's saying all that stuff on the inside of you that, that drastically and directly affects the stuff on the outside, that's where you need the strength. So James doesn't say, look, just kind of, you know, just plow through it. If you're dealing with a difficult situation, you just need to be strong. Because there's some other folks around you, they're going to be struggling, you've got to be strong for them. He doesn't say that. 
He doesn't say try to scheme and figure out a way to make it more fair for you and, and, and more right. And so he doesn't say that. He says, be patient. Strengthen your hearts. It starts on the inside, he says. And this idea of strengthening is the idea of making something firm, making it immovable. And it almost, in some ways, it carries the idea of those of you that, are, that have gardens. When you use a stake to support a vine that's growing so that it will grow the right way, that it will not fall over so it will have support, that's the idea that he's using. And he says, so in that way, make sure that you give support to your inner person. And it's not a prop. It's not trying to fake it. It's really about your inner self. The command is to do that, but how do you do that? When he says be patient, be long-suffering, he's referring to one of, the, one of the parts of the fruit of the Spirit. In Galatians chapter 5, we get this idea of what comes when we know Jesus, what comes when we live by His Spirit each and every day. And part of that is patience, long-suffering. And so James is not saying, look, just figure it out, just try to make it happen. This kind of living only comes when we live daily by the power of the Holy Spirit. We cannot. We cannot drift from week to week and only get our fill, so to speak, once a week or when we think about it or whatever it may be. We cannot drift through life and expect to be able to make it through those times when we are attacked by things that are unfair and not right. Spiritually, we cannot do that. Now, if you've been there before, you can probably attest, look, I know that. There have been things in my life I could not deal with because my inner self was not strengthened by the power of the Holy Spirit. I've been there, and I understand that. And so James is saying, look, this is not a one-time deal. This is a daily, every single moment by moment, living like this is not a passive thing. It's not drifting. It is going after God each and every day and focusing on His Word and getting all that you can from what God has written in the Scripture. It's daily prayer and minute-by-minute prayer, talking with God. And it's, it's obeying, then, what we know from the Scripture. That's how we are to be strengthened. It's not through, through, through little sayings and bumper sticker theology and that kind of stuff. It's, it's through daily walking with God. That is the only way. There are no shortcuts to this kind of life. In our world, we love shortcuts. You can't put this kind of thing in the microwave, though, and get it out a minute later. It doesn't work that way. It is every single day. So if you're overwhelmed, if you are attacked on all sides, it may seem, if everything in your life seems unfair and not right, there is no quick fix. I'll tell you that. But there is a way through it. And that is by daily strengthening your heart, by interacting with Jesus, Every day, moment by moment. That's the only way. Try everything else you want to. And Lord knows we try it, don't we? You can scheme all you want to. You can figure out ways around it. And there are folks who have gotten themselves hooked on this or that, trying to figure a way through those issues. And some of you probably tried that. But the only way, the only way is through strengthening your inner self by the power of the Holy Spirit through Jesus Christ and Him alone. Because we need the power of God to make that happen. The kind of patience that, Job, that, that James here is talking about, references Job, the kind of patience that he's talking about doesn't come through anything else but Jesus Christ, but the power of God living in us. And so if you're hanging by a thread, if you're feeling as if life is closing in on you just a little bit from all the unfairness and all the things that aren't right, the only way through it is by having your inner self strengthened by the power of Jesus Christ. Nothing else will do it. He uses a, a phrase in here a few times when he gets to the end of verse 8, and actually in, in verse 7 as well. He talks about the Lord's coming. 
So he says, be patient, strengthen your hearts. And he references twice in this, the Lord's coming. In verse 7, he says, be patient until the Lord's coming. In verse 8, he says, the Lord's coming is near. And he's reminding us again that all we see here, everything we have, everything we experience is temporary. He's reminding his readers of that. And he's helping them to see that that the real focus is to be on Jesus and on, on their lives with him in eternity. And this is what our hope really hangs on. In 1 Corinthians chapter 15, Paul says that if Jesus was not raised from the dead, then we as Christians are to be pitied above everybody else. Why? Because we're hoping in something that's not true. We're living our lives on something that is not true. And he says, if that's not true, then just live however you want to. What difference does it make? Paul says it is absolutely true. There were witnesses to it, and Jesus showed himself, and history shows us that he, in fact, was raised from the dead. And as a result of that, he says we have hope. He's alive. He's returning. And so life's unfair moments, life's not right moments are simply temporary. Not only because Jesus one day will call us to heaven down the road when we die, but he could return at any moment, at any moment whatsoever. We lose sight of that often. But he could return at any moment. James is reminding of that. That that way, they could then focus on what really matters. They could then focus on the long term. That really gives a completely different perspective on life. When we realize life is temporary, that our situation is temporary, that whatever we're going through is not going to last, and that Jesus could come back at any moment, it gives us strength to get through whatever we're facing. We're less likely, and then he says in verse 9, about complaining against one another. We're also, because of that, when we are patiently trusting in Jesus because He will return, we're less likely then also to allow that unfair situation, that not right deal, to spill over into every aspect of our lives. I I can attest to the fact, and I'm sure many of you can, that if you have a situation that you're facing, say at work or wherever it may be, that is unfair and not right, something that's discouraging you, that, that it's not localized. It's not just with you. It's going to spill over into your marriage, if you're married. It'll spill over into your relationship with children. It'll spill over into your other friendships and so on, or relationship with parents, or whatever it may be. It is not localized. And James is encouraging them, look, keep this in mind so that you won't complain against one another and get caught up in petty arguments that don't really matter because your situation isn't going to last to begin with. Jesus is coming back, he says, and as a result, we have hope that it's not going to last. So stay focused on what matters. Don't allow it to spill over into every single thing. And if we're trusting Jesus and enduring like like he wants us to, then we're less likely to allow that to happen. Let me get a couple more examples. We'll see these as we close. In verses 10 and 11, he says, Take the prophets who spoke in the Lord's name as an example of suffering and patience. The Old Testament is full of, of people. And it's not a bunch of fables that you read and you say, Oh, that must have been great back then. They, the New Testament says those people are examples for us to follow. They are stories for us to learn from, from real people who dealt with God in real-life situations, and we are to learn from them. And he says the prophets, those, those guys in the Old Testament were so famous and spoke on behalf of God, he says, learn from them. Why? Because they did exactly what they were supposed to do, and guess what happened? They suffered for it. He says they spoke in the name of the Lord. You know what that means? They did exactly what God told them to do. The role of the prophet was to speak on behalf of God. And James says they did that. They were in God's will, as we like to say. And yet they were an example of suffering. 
He goes to show you that you can do every single thing right in your life. You can live for God, and you can, so to speak, be blameless before the Lord. We're not going to be perfect till we get to heaven. But you can live a life that is exemplary, and guess what? Things still probably won't go your way in every situation. Now, in 21st century America, we don't like that at all because we are control freaks, myself included. Why? Because we want to, if I do this, well, this ought to happen. Two plus two equals four. Hello? This ought to be the case. And guess what? Two plus two sometimes doesn't equal anything close to four. The formulas we have, well, if I do this, this ought to happen. The Old Testament through the prophets shows that that's not always the case. And you know that, and I know that. So he says, look at the prophets. Look at those guys. And by implication, he says, study their stories. How did they make it? How did they get through those times when they were doing exactly what God said to do, and they're arrested for it? They're shunned by their own people. Jeremiah the prophet preached for 40 years. And guess how many people listened to him? None. Can you imagine that? 40 years. In fact, they shunned him, told him he's crazy. Get out of here. We don't want to listen to you. He did exactly what God told him to do, living in God's will, and he suffered as a result of it. The stories go on and on. I'd encourage you, if you're a person who's like that, and say, you know what, my life is just not fair, but I want to deal with it in, a, in the right way, study the prophets, James says. Go to the Old Testament. Read some of those stories of those people. And by example, they'll show us how we should live. He, he then references a guy named Job. And if you, it, it, even if you haven't been in church, for your, your life. You probably have heard of a guy named Job. Maybe you've heard of the patience of Job. Here's a guy who, first chapter of Job, over in the, in the Old Testament, has no idea what's about to happen to him. He's living his life innocently before the Lord, doing the best he can to follow God. And, and in this behind-the-scenes scenario, we get, he doesn't, we get the idea of what's going on. Satan comes to God and says, look and God says, well, yeah, yeah, absolutely. He said, no, no, he's following you. Satan says, it's only because of all you've given him. You take that stuff away from him, he doesn't really love you. He just likes what you've blessed him with. And God says, I don't believe a word. And God allows some stuff to come into Job's life that would be unimaginable for most of us. He lost all of his children. He lost a good portion of all he had. He was made sick. And as a result, his friends question him. For several chapters, Job, what would you do wrong? Job, there's got to be some sin in your life. God wouldn't do this unless there was some sin in your life. You're being punished for something. Now, you come clean. What is it? And Job says, I didn't do anything. And the Scripture bears that out. He didn't do anything to deserve what happened. And throughout the whole book, the one question, the one question that Job and his friends are asking is, you know the answer that Job gets has nothing to do with why. And, and maybe you're looking for some way to figure out all the why. Job never got it. Job never got why did his kids have to die. Job never got why did he get so sick. Why did he lose everything? You know what he got? God. He got God. And he got God's glory and God's authority in his life. And he came to know God in a deeper way that many of us will never understand probably myself included, how Job knew God in such a way, became so intimate with the Lord on a personal level, and God got glory because of that. And Job, at the end of the book, says, Lord, I'm wrong, and I'm not God, and you are. 
And he gave up on his question of why. As I said, it's a simple thing, but it's not easy. 42 chapters in Job, and he never got his answer. But he got God. And the Bible says that, and Paul said it, I, I consider everything a loss. My questions, everything that's going on in me, everything is a loss compared to the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. Paul says, I don't care if I never get answers to all the junk I deal with. I just want Jesus. Job just wanted God. And he came to know him in a way that few experience. He was purified in the process, and God was glorified. And James says, look at Job. Look at Job. Look at the prophets. These guys did exactly what they were supposed to do, and life was still unfair. Life was still wrong for them. And yet, they trusted God. Were they perfect? No. Did they have moments where they said, hold on just a second? Absolutely. This is not stoicism. This is not stuffing your emotions. This is rising above your emotions and your situation, but only through the power of the Holy Spirit. And saying, God, I trust you even if. God, I trust you even though. And that's what these guys show us. The truth is, when life isn't fair or right, Satan, your enemy, wants you to give up on God. Wants you to give up on God and turn around and go the other way. He wants you to throw in the towel. He wants you to get angry. He wants you to play the victim. He wants you to seek revenge. He wants you to throw a pity party so that you never get past what you're dealing with. So that you just stay right there and stay bound up and stay discouraged and stay defeated and stay depressed for your entire life. That's exactly what Satan wants to happen. But the outcome of what God wants you to see, what God wants you to know is the end of verse 11. He says, you have heard of Job's endurance and have seen the outcome from the Lord. It's not an answer. It's God Himself, the character of God. It says, the Lord is very compassionate and merciful. Satan wants you to give up. wants you just to be driven crazy by trying to understand it all. God just wants you to get Him. And in getting Him, it's enough. Because you get His perspective. And you understand eternity maybe a little bit better. The truth is, James closes with this particular statement, showing us that God can be trusted. He is compassionate. He is merciful. And even when life isn't fair, even when life isn't right, the repeating concept is keep trusting Jesus. James calls us here to persevere in the midst of difficult circumstances. But you can't learn to persevere without a trial. There are no victories without battles. And there are no mountaintops without the valleys. And that, as hard of a truth as that may be, that's what life is. Life is full of trials. Life is full of battles. Life is full of valleys. But you'll never gain endurance the way through that. You'll never gain victory and you'll never see the mountaintop apart from trusting Jesus. And like those prophets and like Job, we're called to keep trusting the Lord even when it's not fair, even when it's not right. They held on to the character of God, who He is, and their love for God, knowing that He never wastes anything that we go through. He has a purpose for every single thing that we encounter. And so when you find yourself in one of those moments, one of those situations, where you're overwhelmed by what's going on, by the unfairness, 
the not rightness, so to speak, of life. My prayer for both you and me is that you not give up. Don't give up. Don't just drift through life hoping you'll get through it. Instead, go to the Lord, the one who is compassionate and merciful. Go to His grace, and He'll extend that grace to you, giving you what you need to endure. Remind yourself God has a purpose, that He's loving and merciful, that He can be trusted, and that He's promised to walk with you through every single thing that you face. Keep trusting Jesus. And Jesus knows what it's like to endure something that He didn't deserve. The entire Scripture culminates in Jesus Christ. It's not just little things to help you get through life. It's about Jesus Himself. He knows what it's like to endure something He didn't deserve. He went to the cross, the Bible says. Sinless. Perfect. And He went to the cross as a substitute for us. He did not deserve the death that He was willing to pay for us. He didn't deserve it. We did. We're the ones who have sinned. We're the ones who have offended God. And yet, the Bible says that God was pleased. It was in nature with His character to punish sin, and He chose to to let His Son be the substitute so that we could experience freedom from the wrath of God on sin. That's not automatic. Because only through trusting Jesus with your life, only through asking Him for forgiveness and salvation, can you gain those things. Can you be forgiven? Can your soul be saved? And so before you can have Jesus as your way through your problems, you must come to grips with the fact that He is the only way, the only one through whom you can go for salvation or forgiveness. Maybe you're a person who struggled with that and you've yet to give your life to Jesus, and, but you say, you know what, I want to wade through all that stuff, man. I know life is hard and I want somebody to walk with me through it. Before Jesus walks through a problem with you, Jesus must be who you walk through for salvation. And then you can say, like the psalmist said in Psalm 27, let me read this to you as we close. Only a person who trusts in the Lord could say these things. Psalm 27. The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom should I fear? The Lord is the stronghold of my life. Of whom should I be afraid? When evildoers came against me to devour my flesh, my foes and enemies stumbled and fell. Though an army deployed against me, my heart is not afraid. Though war break out against me, still I am confident. I have asked one thing from the Lord. This is what I desire, to dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, gazing on the beauty of the Lord and seeking Him in His temple. For He will conceal me in His shelter in the day of adversity. He will hide me under the cover of His tent. He will set me high on a rock. Then my head will be high above my enemies around me. I will offer sacrifices in His tent with shouts of joy. I will sing and make music to the Lord. Lord, hear my voice when I call. Be gracious to me and answer me. In your behalf, my heart says, seek my face. Lord, I will seek your face. Do not hide your face from me. Do not turn your servant away in anger. You have been my help. Do not leave me or abandon me, God of my salvation. Even if my father and mother abandon me, the Lord cares for me. Because of my adversity, show me your way, Lord, and lead me on a level path. Do not give me over to the will of my foes, for false witnesses rise up against me, breathing violence. 
I am certain that I will see the Lord's goodness in the land of the living. And then he closes with this, wait for the Lord. That word wait is trust. Wait for the Lord. Be courageous and let your heart be strong. Wait for the Lord. Trust in Jesus. Keep trusting in Jesus. Let's bow your heads with me. I realize that for many, this particular concept of life not being fair and being right hits very close to home. Because that's what you're dealing with this morning. And that's what you've been dealing with this past week. And you know you'll continue to deal with that as you go home this afternoon and so on. And everybody may be aware of it in your family. And maybe nobody's aware of it, but, but you are. And so maybe just in this moment, you'd take just a, a few minutes and you'd say, Lord, here's what's unfair in my life. God, here's what's not right. And you'd just pour your heart out to him for a second. Say, God, this is unfair. God, this is not right. The Lord's big enough to handle that. He wants your heart. He wants you to pour your heart out to him. Maybe you'd do that for just a moment. And you'd tell him what's on your mind. Be as a follow-up to that prayer, the stuff that you're pouring out to God, saying, Lord, this isn't fair. Lord, this isn't right. You'd say, but I trust you. You'd say like the psalmist, I will wait for the Lord. I will trust in Him. And Lord, I will keep trusting you even if things don't change because I know you are merciful and you are full of compassion. For some of us, that's a prayer we need to pray. A prayer of both lament, of pouring our hearts out to God, and a prayer of trust. Lord, even though those things are true, I trust you. For some of us, the prayer of trust we need to pray is one of asking Jesus into our lives. As I said, we can't have him walk through a situation with you if you haven't gone through him for salvation. Maybe today you'd humble yourself before the Lord. And say, God, I need you for salvation. Jesus, I believe you are the Son of God, that you died for my sin and you were raised again. I give you my life. Maybe that's your prayer today. Oh, Jesus, thank you that you love us, that you can be trusted, that you have a plan. And Lord, even in the midst of life being unfair and not right, we thank you that this life is temporary. That you are alive and you are returning. And we have victory. Thank you, Lord, that you have given us your spirit to live inside of us and see us through these things. And that we have hope for today and hope for tomorrow. So strengthen us, Lord, we pray in Jesus' name.